Therapy, Session 2, It's Not Your Fault. I've probably had about eight serious relationships in my life and a number of boyfriends in between, whom I also thought were serious, but I guess weren't. So I'm really good at men, lots of practice. Recently, I was talking to a man over my social media who was a high-level emotional psychoanalyst. I think something like that. It was amazing. He just wafted ideas at me that were so thought-provoking and deep that, well, it led me down some various paths to try and actually find out why I seemed to be a disaster at the relationship game. So I've done some work, read some books on shame, gone into my childhood memories, forgiven myself and the people around me for being so blind. It really didn't seem that hard. I cried a little and well, I feel a lot better now. What I gleaned from my research is that we are a product of our parents and their parents' 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 shame and guilt-filled upbringings. It has nothing to do with wealth, what school you went to or whether or not you were breastfed. It boils down to whether your ancestors loved themselves enough to be able to show real love. Chances are, no. They didn't, and it was not their fault. They were dealing with wars, the Great Depression, illness, and their parents who were also dealing with stuff and on and on it goes. Just coping most of the time, not really much time for self-reflection. We throw the love word around like candy. It's obviously a very important word, but I'm pretty sure my mum didn't love me. Was that a shocking sentence? Just saying it feels kind of off, because you're not meant to say that about your mother. I'm sure she really wanted to have all those emotions that you see on TV shows and TV ads, but she couldn't because she was broken. The reason why I know this is that only until recently I felt the same. I have an amazing son and I'm a protective mother. I'd take a bullet for my boy. But did I feel a full range of colors when he was born? No. It was like certain colors were missing from the palette. And I felt terrible about it. What's wrong with me? I'd ask that question all the time. But I think one of the problems is that the word love is just a word. We're trying to use that word for many different types of feelings. Yeah, okay, back to the truth. I didn't feel all the emotions that I thought I should for my son because I was broken and it wasn't my fault. I'm honestly welling up just writing this because it's an awful admission, but it's honest and I'm sick of lies. When he was born, I thought, what? Where is it? That motherly thing. People call it postpartum depression, but I think it's maybe way bigger than that. I have no idea if this is true, but I bet people with the supposed postpartum are probably not in happy relationships and not happy in general with themselves. Probably in the same probably fog of sadness that I lived in for 50 years. But when you look down into that baby's eyes and you feel nothing significant, it's just awful. The guilt adding a nice juicy layer onto the guilt you already feel. I've been in a state of depression, again, just another word, since I was born. My family and people close to me know it, but I'm a good actress. 
Most people think I'm fine. Whenever I talk to people, I try to impress them, make them think I'm so great. Why? Because I'm not so great. Trying to impress people is an obvious sign of this thing. This angry, sad, hateful pebble that sits in your belly. We wear outfits and create images of ourselves that fit into the world around us, but it's just wallpaper. Another thing we do, I think, us women, is focus on our relationships with a mighty thirst. It's so fun. We can talk about men for hours. Then he did this, then he did that. It's ridiculous behavior, really. What we really need to say is, then I did this. Why did I do that? Why am I me? We get besotted by men, let them become our whole reason, happily walk behind them with a mop and broom, whatever that means. And men hate it, and we hate ourselves for doing it, but it's not our fault. It's not your fault. Another strange thing is that I can spot someone else who's like me a mile off, and I'm kind of drawn to them. They always make me feel bad about myself too, but that moth, well, it keeps me going back. Why? I don't know. This, this is, is not a self-help rant. rant. I'm just ranting. My son said to me recently that he felt me change and that it's really good. So I explained to him how I felt and about my mother and her mother. And I apologized. I did this in the hope that I could stop the wheel turning and that maybe he can love himself because I can now show him real love. Really why am I just figuring this stuff out? What a waste of time. I guess that's why I'm ranting, just in case you're wearing similar shoes, which I also seem to buy way too many pairs of. Uh, what the hell is that all about? When the emotional psychoanalyst told me it was not my fault, it was such relief. We aren't allowed to say that sentence very much in our culture. It's always take responsibility for your actions. But you can't take responsibility when you have no idea where you're acting in a certain way in the first place. Anyway, I've opened a door. I think it's the first of a few that need to be opened, but it wasn't that hard. So back to the reason why I started writing this. <laughs> Men. Does this mean that I'm ready to actually have a deep and truly meaningful partnership with a man? I guess we'll find out. So, the secret of making him fall deeply in love forever. That just came up on my social media. It's a course I can take. I must say, I'm kind of interested. What is the secret? I'll read on. So, one of the things I've already noticed is a line where it says, there's a key to getting his total devotion. I suspect that was written by a man because most women I've talked to don't really fancy totally devoted men. God, no. We want semi-devotion. Yes. I can't stand it when someone's too into me. Is that bad? Or maybe that's the old me. Maybe now I enjoy my own company. Maybe I can have a man who does also. Right, or maybe I need a guy who's a little naughty. Yeah. Hmm. There have been two prominent men in my life, my father and my brother. My father was really fun, outgoing, smart, creative, larger than life, like a hero figure. My brother was quiet and dependable. Did I mention he was quiet and dependable? 
It seems to me that my relationships are built around that model. I either get one of two types, nothing in between, or maybe that's all I can see. Hmm, interesting. Do I just block out these guys' other qualities and make them into my brother and father? Probably. What I'm finding out is that it's me who makes all the ghosts appear. Do I even allow most of these guys to be anything more than my dad and brother? I don't know. I was in a car crash once. I was driving north up a small country road. I saw the car coming fast towards the stop sign and I thought maybe if I keep going he will miss me. So I gripped the steering wheel and looked forward with purpose. Then it was like everything got shoved and I started to fly. I felt tiny, like a toddler, and I thought, it's okay, I'm all right. Things were flying around my head, a pair of sunglasses, money, paper, my gloves, and I thought, it's okay, I'm all right. I looked down at my tiny self floating around my folded knees, and I thought, it's okay, you're all right. And then I was upside down in a cloud of quiet snow, and I thought, wow. It's still okay. I'm still all right. I can't remember if the engine was running, but I managed to get the window open, and I crawled out and waded up the snowbank. The driver of the other car was walking towards me on the white road in a dark business suit, talking on his phone. And he said, Are you all right? The event must have taken about 10 seconds, but it lasted about an hour. I felt absolutely alive, like it was an absolute in-the-moment experience. That thing that people are trying to achieve from 35 years of yoga, that slowing down of time, that clear, absolute, personal God-type voice that keeps you calm. I loved it. But that kind of absolute crunch feeling comes with a price. I hadn't been hurt at all, really. The three-quarter ton truck I was driving was the thing that got killed off in the end. But I got, well, shock. Some light form of PTSD, I guess. Because it's been at least 10, 15 years now, and my mind will not allow my body to relax when there's a car coming from the right. My foot pushes ever so slightly on that brake pedal. Sometimes it pounces. My eyes watch with great concentration and I can't help it. It's a physical reaction that's faster than my present mind, some part of my mind that I'm not in control of, trying to look after me. I'm wondering if I'm reacting like that all the time without knowing it, all these triggers, all those cars coming from the right, father, brother, Am I still son, in that truck? boyfriend. How much control do we have even if I do this work that I've been doing, can I really change? Is it too late? Is part of me always going to hide underneath that blanket? I think I'm way more in the present than I was before, but what about those triggers I'm surrounded by? And why are they called triggers? Why aren't they called gunshot wounds? Thousands of silent, loaded guns smiling at me. Am I still flying around in that truck? I can still remember it with absolute clarity, like an imprint. It was not nearly the worst thing that's happened in my life. 
Am I reacting like this the whole time without knowing it? This is what I want to ask the professional. registered psychotherapist qualifying okay so so I sent you this uh, recording that I did and um, what were your sort of what did you initially feel when you heard it I loved I loved hearing kind of the free-flowing process because I think so many of us think about our life and experiences that way it's a bit like a dream where it it jumps and and kind of moves from one thing to the next, but it all has so much meaning. I want to mention that I'd never met Laura before. Um, and it just, I think it moved me that she was able to give me such a great compliment with such ease after only just meeting her. Um, it was quite moving to me right off the bat. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I re-listened to it this morning and one of the things that, that struck me about it was um, I talk about the fact that I had two men in my upbringing mm -hmm. who had a big impact, I think, mm -hmm. on me. And one was my father and my, my brother. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess my question is, is that, is, is do the, the guys you grew up with, do, do they have a huge impact on the way you see men as an adult? Yeah, and I think, you know, I think absolutely. Um, I think one of the biggest things, you know, there's sort of the stereotype around women marry men like their fathers. Yeah. And, and I think that it's a stereotype for a reason. I, I wonder, though, how much we confuse sort of attraction, we're attracted to men like our father, to comfort. It's what we know. Yeah. And so of course there's an ease. We understand how that person works. We understand how their combination of characteristics and traits work together and we know how to work it. Right. We, we know how to deal with those things, good and bad. I think it's part of what contributes at times to women ending up in really dysfunctional relationships with men like their dads Okay. <laughs> on some of the dysfunctional areas because there's a comfort there. Okay. So if my father was completely an extrovert mm -hmm. and my brother was a complete introvert, yeah. and I know those terms can be confusing but I'd say that my brother and my father were extreme examples of both yeah, so am I screwed because, <laughs> because I had two, two extremes I don't think so I I don't think it's that binary okay. I don't think it's that black and white right I think there are pieces of both um, that contribute to who you are and there are going to be things about both that may make other relationships complicated depending on you know you may see that sort of quieter presence as something that is safer and stable it doesn't mean it is it may mean that they're actually emotionally unavailable but you may feel drawn to that because that was your safety in that 
in that time frame. Yeah. It doesn't mean that, again, that's the full story, I think, um, but I think it has impact. Right. That makes sense. I think it's safe to say that one thing that's said to me is that I've definitely been more comfortable with what I think is peace. But peace may just be being quiet and not telling the truth. And as my horse trainer friend would say, it's the quiet ones that explode. It's almost like these days, you don't even have a chance to be drawn to a type of person. Mm -hmm. You kind of, you go through this dating mm -hmm. um, thing. It's not like a, a police lineup where you get to choose the right guy for you. Mm -hmm. you. You just sort of end up with this one <laughs> slight, potentially interesting person. So I'm not even sure that it's fair to say in a way you're drawn mm -hmm. to someone. I'm wondering if you, you're projecting on someone. Yeah, I think, again, I think it's always an and in both. I don't think there's ever, we're all such different, unique people. Part of the challenge, if you're talking dating these days, is you're, you know, it's predominantly this online thing. Yeah. That is so different than what has happened in the past. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think it, I think it changes some of those dynamics. You're actually able to almost look and share a like shopping list of what you think you want. Yeah. And it removes some of the opportunity of being surprised. You have examples of two men in your life who form so much of who you are. There may be other things that you just don't even know because that's what you're used to. That's what you know. That's what you understand. And so your quote unquote shopping list of what you want in a guy is naturally going to be based on your experience of guys. Yeah. There may be this whole other thing out there that does something beautiful with who you are that you just haven't, yeah. you don't even have the knowledge to know that that's there. Yes. Right. Mm. And we're not meeting people in real life and seeing them in social situations as much anymore to kind of be able to watch and wonder about those different pieces. As she said this, I felt I honestly started to get teary because it's such a nice thing to think about that you don't know everything about yourself, that there's still places in you that maybe you haven't discovered yet. And this cocktail of a relationship could bring out these parts of you that are, that are good, that you may have missed. It was such a, a lovely thing to think about. Good. That's really, really neat. So, so um, at the end of the recording I sent you, I talk about uh, sort of slight forms of PTSD mm -hmm. that, that you... And the, uh, the story I told was quite interesting for me as a mm -hmm. human because I still do it. It's been 15 years or yeah. so now, and I still have that car coming from mm -hmm. the right. Yeah. So I might do... How many other things like, for, ha, have I got that I don't even know about? Tons. <laughs> I think tons. I think, again, you know, we're, our, our brains are constantly developing. And, you know, there's these pieces that happen with trauma. I, 
you know, have heard trauma often referred to as, as a brain injury. And it is. Okay. It's, it actually changes so much of how your brain works and functions. And I think we have these, you know, I always want to be careful about the word trauma because it means so many different things to people. There's like the clinical trauma, which requires, you know, a diagnosis. And here's all of the things that have to be in place in order for it to be considered trauma. But I think we use it in conversation um, a lot more often than that. Right. But we have these encounters that impact us in really strong negative ways throughout our entire lives. I don't think, you know, the kid who gets bullied when they're young, when you are in a home where your parents are fighting constantly, when, you know, you have car accidents, when you have broken legs, sports injuries, all of these things, I think, have impact and continue to. And sometimes it can get us stuck and we stay stuck until we work through it. And sometimes we are able to kind of breeze past it naturally. And, you know, it's always amazing to me how the same event can have such a drastically different impact on two different people. Mm. There's just no rule in how it's going to affect you. And so you've been, like you said, 15 years impacted by this car accident where you still have remnants of it. Mm-hmm. And others who've been in accidents and it has, you know, they may, they'll, they'll have been impacted, of course, initially, but who no longer feel the ripples of that. So again, maybe I hadn't thought about it in that way before that we, we all feel things differently, but we react. I thought that maybe we all felt things the same way, but we reacted differently but of course I knew, I know that we feel things differently, but... So do you... I... Is that because of... Yeah. It's just, it's, you probably don't know what it's because of. It's just because... I think it's, I think it can be because of a lot of things. I think <clears throat> some of it's going to be personality. Some of it's going to be your upbringing. Some of it's going to be the other experiences within your realm. If you've experienced, you know, harder things or perceived harder things, what's the worst for someone may be a Tuesday for someone else. Yeah. Right? And so that's going to, we're going to deal with that very different. Is part of personality, well, this sounds, sometimes you start asking a question and then you think you know the answer before you finished it and then you probably don't. So I'm just going to keep going. Yeah. But is I feel like the the fear based in that mm-hmm. that uh, PTSD I feel about the car crash. I feel that that fear I have for that car coming from the right I have a lot mm. for different things. Yeah. So is that because uh, is that a personality or is that because of trauma from I'm suspecting that my childhood was, well, I know my childhood was pretty traumatic. So yeah. it is what I, my question is, is, is that a personality thing or is that more likely trauma? It's, you know, I think it's and and both. I think a lot of these things are, are and and both. I think okay. 
So when it comes to personality, um, you know, if you're someone who is more naturally a worrier, if you're someone who is more naturally, um, you know, assessing risk and taking in the information around you in a calculated way, is you're going to handle some of that different than someone who's a bit more laid back, a bit more um, relaxed in terms of going with the flow and, and not too worried about everything coming at them. Yeah. When it comes to trauma, you know, true trauma, PTSD, one of the biggest symptoms is hyperarousal. And, you know, what that means is basically you're constantly ready for danger. Okay. You're, you're not, and not just like attentively ready, you may be physically ready for danger. Your heart rate is up a bit higher. Oh, that's awful. You're, you're generally a bit more jittery. Um, you know, your body is prepared to run or fight at any moment. And that's one of the biggest, you know, things about trauma is dealing with that sense of hyperarousal where you're constantly ready for the next shoe to drop. Yeah. So my little glimpse is like tiny because mm -hmm. if, if that must be that must be so exhausting and that's why people Absolutely. That's why people it's such yeah. a terrible thing. Well, and it happens in relationships. And I think that's part of you know to almost tie in a couple of the things we were talking about this idea of attachment is you know you have people who are securely attached they believe they're they're comfortable with intimacy they have a sense of safety and security within their intimate relationships you have people who are avoidant who they they kind of avoid intimacy they'll want to be close to someone but then when it actually comes to getting close they'll start pushing away and then people who are anxiously attached and that's you know, people who are anxiously attached, it's kind of like they're hyper aroused within their relationship, constantly waiting for that person to leave them and abandon them. And they're the ones who may, you know, someone doesn't reply to that text. They send a hundred more texts. Are you okay? Where are you? What happened? What's going on? Um, and it's that hyper arousal. You're always waiting for that person to hurt you, to leave you, to decide they don't want you anymore. And, and you know, I think all of that happens within relationships. So if you've had some trauma within your relationships, you may find some of the remnants of that and responding in those same ways. And I think if that's been your history, you're, you may also be more susceptible to PTSD and other reactions like that. All right. And relationships are... We're all meant to be so together and so through these past relationships and mm. so well-adjusted. Like I've, yeah. I've read thousands of well-adjusted people's mm -hmm. dating profiles. Yeah. <laughs> and the truth is that it's, you may feel well-adjusted when you're not in a relationship, but when you start to open the, the feelings up Absolutely. and get vulnerable. All of a sudden you're 14 years old again. And yeah. No, don't know what to do with this person in front of you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nailed it. I think I'm a mixture of all three of those things, but definitely the last one. 
where I'm always waiting for something to go wrong and as soon as something looks like it, it's gone wrong, I feel that huge sense of abandonment and I just rock it down into this dark place and start shouting or I just say it's over and off I go because I can't take the pain. Hmm. So um, right when we first sat down, you were talking about the the initial uh, feeling that you had when you listened to this piece about mm. my relationship with my mother. Yeah. Um, and my relationship with my son. Mm-hmm. And how, so that to me, it sounds like that that is, it's a PTSD thing that I'm having with my son because of my relationship with my mother. A little bit. It's actually, it's kind of brain development. Um, you know, we have this, this part in our brain, the attachment system, that um, is, you know, basically is formed and developed based on intimate relationship. And so it starts being developed with the, you know, parent-child right from birth. And if that parent-child attachment isn't there, that part of your brain doesn't develop. And so you're not going to, it's not there to then do that with the next level of generations. Right. Um, I think somewhere in in the thing you sent me, you said something along the lines of, it's it's not their fault. They just never had it. Yeah. And I thought that was so beautiful because that's so true. Right. You know, I think people sometimes feel like therapy is just about blaming your parents. And and there's some truth to that, but it's more recognizing the way that their stuff has impacted your stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's not their fault. You no. can only give what you have to give and what you were given. And so, you know, I think one of the beautiful things is our brains can still develop, they can still heal, and that attachment piece, it's not like, well, I didn't get that from my parents, so I guess I'm screwed. It can still develop in other intimate relationships. And so I think there's some there's some beauty there, but that's where you see some of those generational patterns. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, so, again, it's good news. There's hope. It's just like anything. If you want to have a six-pack, you got to do some sit-ups. That's all. That's what she's saying. I actually think I will never, I could never, even if I did millions of sit-ups. So again, a crap analogy, but you know, you get it. When I went through my big breakup, it was hard. And I never thought it would be that hard. Mm. I I imagined many times breaking up with this man and how I would, Mm. and you know, honestly, I, part of me hoped he would have an affair so I could get out of this situation. Mm. And then he did, and it completely just killed me. And I really went down to a place I'd never hung out before. Like, you know, I got really low. And after going through the whole thing, and it took years, I really, really, at the end, thought, God, I wish I'd gotten more help, because it may have taken so much less time. Absolutely. Even just to know 
how to communicate differently what was leading to some of those challenges, right? And yeah. and to get honest, you know, I've I've come to understand affairs in a really different way doing this job than I ever thought I would. And part of it is there's there can be they're they're horrible and hurtful and and absolutely cause harm, but there can be this incredible relationship that comes out of it. A marriage like, you know, that that never could have existed before because it forces you to get honest. Yeah. And if you, you know, if, if a spouse cheats and you choose to still stay together, if you're both willing to work on it, not every time, I would never say blanket statements, but this beautiful thing can come of it because you're communicating your vulnerabilities in a way that you haven't probably since you first met. Yeah. Over the years, again, it's it's these little cuts that you build up walls and they get higher and higher. And it sometimes takes something drastic to break that down and force you to get a bit real both with yourself and with that other person. Yeah. So a divorce or, or a an affair can... Do you think it causes a personality shift or it just is like a big awakening kind of period in your life? I think I think it can be a whole bunch of things, but I think I don't know that I don't know that it's a personality shift so much as you know, in the same way that becoming a mom, all of a sudden you've discovered this new identity you didn't have before. Right. And it's not that you change, your personality drastically changes, but at the same time, everything changes. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a discovering of something new in yourself. Okay, this is, I really, really loved how hopeful and the, the nice things you've said about mm-hmm. how the, the brain is like a, a working mm-hmm. tool that you can keep, keep growing. Rewire. Rewire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That was really yeah, awesome. Absolutely. I really enjoyed that. It's great. And good messages there. I think that people are afraid sometimes of therapy. Mm-hmm. And I, another thing I think too is that people don't spend money on the right things. Absolutely. <laughs> so therapy, yeah. people go, oh, I can't afford it. Mm-hmm. I, that's what I did. Yeah. And then, yeah, I was still buying 18 bottles of wine a week. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> It goes somewhere. <laughs> we all have our ways of coping. Or that, that you know, 200th pair of shoes. <laughs> right. Like I said, what's with that? Yeah. Okay. It's all coping. self-management. <laughs> all right, great. Thank you so much.